Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to Genuine Humans podcast, and I'm here as ever with the wonderful Wendy Christie. Hello, Wendy. Hello, Tamara. How are you? I'm doing absolutely fine. Thank you. I'm keen to just get cracking on and introducing our wonderful guest, who is Tina Fijan. And Tina is the, a global marketing procurement consultant and the chair of the CIPS Marketing Group, and perhaps my favorite to- title, the co-chair of the Get Shit Done Board for the Conscious Advertising Network. So welcome. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to see you both. Before we start diving into all sorts of probing questions. Can you just sort of share a little bit about what you're doing as a as a procurement consultant? Yeah, sure. So yeah, thank you. Now I mean looking forward to the probing questions. It really sort of made me think about, you know, my past and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to that section. So yeah, so I was one of the first, give my age away now, about thirty years ago, to get involved in marketing procurement when I worked for what is now Telefonica with Cellnet. Um and I was like oh, why is the advertising agency buying the mobile phone handbook? You know, which at that time, for the kids that are listening, you know, the instructions weren't on the internet those days. They were a book. And I was like, why is the ad agency buying it? So I basically went to uh, a printer and it was 50% savings. So I was like, oh, there's something here from a procurement point of view. And traditionally, you know, procurement has been quite male-dominated and we haven't really... Yeah, you know, that you know, thirty years ago, we weren't really involved in things like services or indirect procurement. Um, so I just started to look in, into that, and so literally, I was one of the first globally to get involved in the, the buying of marketing services. I've always been a procurement person, and worked with some great companies. You know, say Cellnet, and then I went to SmithKline Beecham, now GSK, and worked on everything below the line. I just read an article this morning about vending machines, and I did buy LucasAid vending machines. So I did everything there, and then I worked for Wonderful Orange. If you cut, cut us all, we still bleed orange. The future's bright. <laughs> um, still got my EE phone number um, and did marketing procurement there. And that was fantastic. And that involves when I was work client side. So it was looking at the whole, you know, agency supply, you know, ecosystem as it was. Um, looking at where obviously we can put contracts in place and where we can get best value. I'm not saying cost savings, but best value for the marketing budget. And that is always the tact I've taken with any of the marketing clients, both, you know, when I was working client side and now as a consultant about driving best value. Where are the synergies? Where are the opportunities? And the roles really evolved. You know, if I really look at where we were 30 years ago to where we are now, you know, marketing procurement is really at the forefront of pushing, you know, the supply chain, looking at digital technology, looking at the ecosystem. So yeah, then I worked for two advertising agencies, Gray and Lowe, and that was really interesting, having been a, a client to go and work on the supplier side. And I've never worked so hard in my life as when I worked on the on, on the agency side. So I do appreciate how, you know, how agencies work. There, there are a lot of great learning, but really from a procurement point of view, just getting the insight into how agencies work and the interaction with clients, both marketing and procurement. And then 16 years ago, I sat on my own consultancy, uh, working 
on my own, you know, bring other people when I need to. So actually working for agencies to begin with, but that didn't really take off as much because I think, you know, 16 years ago, procurement was still fairly new. Agencies were hoping we'd go away uh, and we didn't. So I've ended up working more client side. So that could be anything from, you know, mentoring, marketing, procurement teams, uh, training, again, helping them look from a strategic point of view about the opportunities from a, from a marketing point of view. So yeah, really enjoy it. So I've been doing it, say, for over 30 years and, and really happy to be giving stuff back. So hence chairing our, our, our group, SIP, Charging Street Procurement Supplies Group on Marketing. I've done that since its inception. I keep volunteering to stand down, but no one wants to take over. <laughs> they won't let you. <laughs> no, they won't. And then, you know, Jake and Harriet asked me to, along with Dino, uh, be the co-chair of the Get Shit Done Ball for the Conscious Advertising Network as well. So, yeah, 30 years in a nutshell there. And tell me more a little bit about the Conscious Advertising Network. What kind of shit gets done, as it were? You know, t- tell me more about for anyone who doesn't know about it as well. Yeah, thank you, Tamara. So that it was set up by uh, Jake and Harriet sort of about four years ago. Jake's neighbour went was Turkish, uh, lived in London, went to the pub and uh, got attacked for no reason. So Jake then met Harriet at a conference and thought, you know, we should be doing something about this. So from a marketing point of view, basically our premise is that the ethics of advertising haven't caught up with technology. So we generated um, six manifestos from things like misdisinformation to fake news to advertising to children and children's well-being and they approached me I met Jake through a pitch I was running and he said well can you come and sort of join join the team I was like why do you want a procurement person but the premise is that we want to make sure that the manifestos clients and brands um, agencies and brands sign up to are involved in the pitch process so what we do is basically get brands um, the big name brands we've got like O2 SSE British Gas and what they do is any interaction they have on the media side so we've got some big agency groups like Group M Havas uh, involved or not in the conscious advertising network is when you're buying advertising we've got a tracker and we basically say across these six manifestos um, you have to make sure that you are adhering to these principles but we've gone further than that now you know and we we actually thought we'd do ourselves out of a job but you know unfortunately like the racism we saw after the euros and obviously you know recently a lot of the you know the the climate change you know disinformation that was coming out after cop 26 um we've actually started doing open letters and we have regular um meetings with the platforms about affecting change so pinterest last week announced they were working with us to make sure they will make sure there's no fake claims going out about greenwashing mm. etc uh, and they get shit done board we formed that last summer uh, and that's very uk focused because actually we've got support from people like the un who want us to look at it globally we're all volunteers we've got four paid staff now but the rest of us are volunteers and it's just about spreading the word and basically for anyone that's listening you know we'd love brands we'd love agencies to sign up and, and support our manifestos and how they buy and interact on the media point of view and we're just launching a seventh one which we'll launch in may which is uh, climate and sustainability because obviously as we, as we all know that's a really key focus so we've listened to our members so it's about sharing content uh, providing a voice to advertisers and agencies working with the platforms and doing the good so making sure that we have got the ethics in place and it is aligned with the technology that that we are using these days when we procure media amazing it's such a, a good organization to support so hopefully people will take you up on that call to action and going back 30 years again i just want to sort of talk about how you got that first break in your career i think wendy is jumping at the bit to go further back but i'm sort of interested into that early career of how you how you kind of got into this in the first place 
Yeah, I mean, I think when I was sort of prepping for this, I think, you know, was one of Wendy's questions of like, you know, when you come out of the womb almost, you know, is that what you want to be <laughs> as a buyer? You don't tend to find that with procurement people. There's never any buyer <laughs> that I've ever, ever met that said, you know, when you want to grow up, what do you want to be? I want to be a buyer. So we all seem to fall into it as a job. I went to Brighton Poly and I did business studies and I actually did marketing in my last year. And Thorny and my company, again, and that dates those that are listening, joined the graduate recruitment scheme for procurement. And at that time, they um, they were a big global company, but they had companies like obviously EMI Records, Rumbelows, Radio Rentals. These are white, like what is like Curry's these days through to things like Thorn Lighting and Thorn Security. So I spent two years working at all the different Thorn EMI procurement teams. I mean, I met Cliff Richard and the Reclaimers at EMI Records uh, through to buying capacitors at Thorn Lighting, which just bored me to death. So from <laughs> that, I started to get a view about what what you know, I, I enjoyed buying. I thought this is quite good spending somebody else's money, and you know, meeting people, you know, negotiating. But I really didn't like the direct, what we would know as direct purchasing. Um, so as when I went to Cellnet, that's why I think I thought, oh, what's this marketing area of spend? And of course, when you look at an organisation, marketing, you know, is a is a huge area of spend. We're coming out of the pandemic now and we, we know that the marketing spend is on the increase. So I just started to get involved in marketing uh, from that point of view and actually just found found my forte. My partner always said, he said, I've never known anybody who loves their job so much. And I think that's still true. 30 years on, I just, I make him watch all the ads, you know, because I would not fast forward <laughs> to them because I look at that ad, you know, and look at this bit of direct mail that's come through or look at this banner ad. I just I just really just loved it. And it was great being one of the first, you know, alongside Mick, who was at Diageo, and there was Jeff, who was at BT. And, and the UK was the first market to start doing it, you know, I mean, and it was great to be involved in that and to push the boundaries and work with Debbie Morrison when she was at Isbar to form Compag, their purchasing action group. And it's great. And it, it's, it's a fantastic category you know I, mm. I love I love marketing I love what we do um, I love making change the clients are fantastic you know be it the CMOs that I work with on a daily basis or other marketing people you know and you guys know we, we, it's, it's, it's a great it's a great industry to work in it can be tough and can be hard and you know that's why I support and especially um, you know, the mental health initiatives because my partner does suffer from mental health so you know I do really support you know initiatives that Dougie's doing at the IPA about the pitch protocol and brilliant creative minds and stuff like that so you know it's 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 a fantastic industry I think meet people like you tomorrow and Wendy it's just you know it's a social industry we've missed that last two years it's just nice to get out and about and see people and have a drink at Soho House or whatever all those you know being typical marketing people but just great to get out and about again as well but I love it I, I love the job and I love the category it's a wonderful thing to be able to say that after 30 years that you still wake up and love your job. That is a, a great place to be. Absolutely. And and so you mentioned when you came out of the womb, you didn't immediately want to be a buyer. So <laughs> was there something that you did want to be? No, I didn't. You know, I had a really ordinary childhood, a working class childhood in South London, um, memories of my pogo stick and you know marking the pavement outside the house because I'd worn the rubber off and uh, the space hoppers and you know friends that I made and doing lots of different clubs you know brownies the girl guides I was in charge of the snowdrop patrol um, mum made me do judo and swimming and stuff like that you know and friends I've got today were friends childhood friends but I never you know I look back I thought no I never really had 
you know, a burning ambition to be anything. And actually, a recurring theme when I was prepping for this was my mum. My mum had to leave school when she was 14 because her dad died and had to bring up her five brothers and sisters because her mum wasn't around that much. And I think she just wanted the best for me, you know, and I am what I am now down, down to my mum, really. And I think she was the one that, you know, I, I went to a I got a scholarship to a to a convent, and yes, you know we couldn't wear shiny shoes, as the old story goes about the convent. <laughs> um, and just just encouraged me, you know, not in a really pushy way, but I think she just wanted what she couldn't have because she had to leave school early. So no, she and she encouraged me to go to college. She encouraged me to go to Brighton Poly, and even then, you know, I was doing business studies, which obviously is a good all round degree, isn't it? Think, you know, I've, I've got my fingers in all different pies here, be it finance or marketing. And there was procurement, actually, there was buying, um, but I didn't do that as an option. So to be honest, it wasn't really until you know the milk round or you know looking for um, where to go when I was twenty two, uh, I thought. Hmm, that's an interesting company, Thorny Mai, and, and that looks a really interesting role in core procurement. So, yeah, I just sort of, as I said, fell into it and mm-hmm. just really lucky, just really enjoyed it. I love that that two years in, in trying different jobs. I think that's a part of it in that I love variety. And I think that's why I love doing the consultancy gig that I do. You know, at the moment, I have to, I've got a post-it note, I've got like nine different clients, you know, various shapes and sizes. And I think that's what I like. And I think, you know, I look back and think when I work for an organisation, you know, I enjoyed it, but I don't enjoy it as much as I do now and just that variety. And I think that's what, you know, working at Thorny MI and working in procurement has given me that every day is a different day, which is absolutely brilliant. So, no, didn't come out of the womb thinking that. No plan, you know, supported by my mum and just that narrowing of choices, I suppose. And you can do a bit better. You can go to college. You can do business studies. And then... Yeah, and then sort of take it from there and fly, really. And it might be, I mean, it sounds like you had quite an active and social childhood, you know, and maybe you just didn't have time to be thinking, well, what do I want to do in 15, 20 years time? And and I don't know, maybe it makes you a, a more rounded person and I think after all for I think for most of us I mean I wanted to be first a gymnast and then a hairdresser and you know and what does it matter what you wanted to be because I think it's so rarely where people actually end up and and listen to some of the stuff you do now that's around you know sort of doing good and affecting change and did any of that come out of your childhood experiences do you think is that what you were like as a kid no, again, I, I'm, I was trying to work out where that's come from because I do like doing good. So, you know, I'm chair of our little residence association in the hamlet that I live in. And actually today I've actually had a, done a collection. We've got a thing called Love in a Bag where we, we're putting together toiletries and bags for Ukrainian refugees when they start arriving in Tame. And I didn't know out and I actually dropped off a load of stuff this morning to Tame Town Council. And, you know, I'm, I'm chair of our residence association. I was director of a credit union. You know, I've been thinking about why why I do so much to give back. And I think, I, you know, I read somewhere that someone sort of says sometimes it's the working class people that have come up from where they are. You know, I'm not an opera Winfrey, you know, and or Howard Schultz, whatever you know, with some Starbucks that have got billions and billions. But, you know, I, I just like being generous. You know, I'm okay with what I've got. I'm very lucky I paid my mortgage off a few years ago. You only need so much. As long as I get my business class travel, that is one perk I do Absolutely. like. But, um, you know, I do like to support and do do good and make people feel good and stuff like that. But no, I don't. I think it's just come from my background generally, I mm-hmm. think, in that we weren't tight. But, we, you know, I remember our first holiday at Pontins 
where I won the fancy dress competition dress as a litter bin, believe it or not. My mum <laughs> stapled crisp packets on me. Um, and our first holiday abroad, you know, was was to Spain. And, and that was it. And that was another sort of Pontins or Butlins or whatever. So, yeah, I think that obviously it, it must do in terms of that, you know, the, the, I think it's very much the social side, the, the friendship and those deep friendships I still have today. Our friends that I went to school with, I was in the guides with and that I went to Brighton Poly with and actually where I lived, two of my best friends, I saw best friend this morning at the gym class were people that I've known for 30, 35, 40 years. And uh, I just like helping other people and, and, you know, being generous really and supporting them. And and thinking about some of those people that either you've just known, been friends with or worked with over the years, who are the ones that have really influenced your career or your life in general? I think my mum has been the main influence and, you know, because she had to leave school when she did. And, you know, and that that was that was really tough for her. And I've got a brother and he's very different from me. And, you know, he's very content in what he does. But I think she's been the main influence because she just wanted better for me because of her, her childhood you know and being brought up with her five brothers and sisters in a flat in Brixton which wasn't trendy like it is now all those years ago so I I, I think her and then when I was at um, Brighton Polly there's, there's two friends uh, there that I'm still friendly with best friends with now and I think and it's funny because we haven't married uh, we haven't had kids and it almost like it wasn't we never sort of discussed that, but it's just mm-hmm. by nature we sort of ended up that way and we're all just really similar and just enjoying life. And I think that great support and wanting that deep friendship and pushing each other to be the best and enjoy life the, the way we want to enjoy life. But, yeah, it's my, like my old man always says, what was it in the water at Brighton Polly? Because, you know, you've all come out of it and actually, you know, at 56 – you're all doing, you know, you know, one friend that they've sold a health club they had and she's sort of, you know, in sort of joining semi retirement. Another friend sells tea towels, you know, and does tours for foreign, you know, just has a great, a great balance of life. Uh, and I think we've all achieved that at 56, which is is great. And actually all my Brighton Polly friends, there's only one actually that's working nine till five for a company and a great job, but everyone else is doing their own thing. So I think that's been my greatest influence, well, too, my mum and my Brighton Polly friends. And I don't know what it was in the water, in the sea at Brighton Polly, um, but that bond, you know, we get together and we still talk about, oh, do you remember when you put that traffic cone in your head? And do you remember that <laughs> shorts party? You know, and the old man, all the partners are like, oh, here we go again. Um, but yeah, very, very formative, very strong. Um, and I think it's made us all the people that we are now. But none of them know what I do. The, you know, even the old man says, you buy pencils. It's like, I've got my own website. Just go and look at what I do. You know, but yeah, you buy pencils. It's like, right, okay, then. I still don't think my mother knows exactly what I do either. <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it? It does sound, uh, Tina, from that there was a sort of, a lot of about relationship building, as, as Wendy was saying. But I want to pick up on something that you mentioned specifically about the procurement industry. You you said that it's very male-dominated. And I'm sort of curious to know what impact that had on you. Was it something that, that you kind of became a bit of an issue or did you just sort of double down? Was it a point of difference for you? So t- tell me about that experience. Yeah, well, there's two experiences um, at one of the companies that I work for that really highlighted the fact being a woman. One is, you know, and you, you look back now, don't you, that I was I, I was bullied by other women mm-hmm. that, that work there 
for various reasons and you and you look back and you think well what was that you know I'm not one to play the feminine game you know and I think that's that really affected me in that I'm going to be the best I am for who I am is not because of how I look you know I haven't got long blonde hair and short skirts that's I'm not playing that game and that was a real game changer I think in being a female and it was hard in procurement because there were no there were no role models Mm -hmm. there were no role models that were female there were no role models that worked in marketing the other thing that happened is you know I did a, a great piece of work at this company it was a global project Bearing in mind, this is 25 years ago. We were one of the first to do it and had a meeting with the chief procurement officer, a, a, a bloke, a man. And I was so frustrated, I started crying. And still to this day, I'm annoyed with myself about it because mm-hmm. if I'd been a bloke, would I have cried? And it was just the emotion just got the better of me in terms of being so frustrated. And I really, reg- I still regret it to this day, actually, that I sort of let myself down. And I think, well, I shouldn't do because I was so passionate about what we were doing. We were just, you know, this really brilliant project that was UK-US focused. We delivered some huge results for the organisation and he just wasn't interested. Mm. You know, go back to buying X, Y or Z. It's been really tough, I think, being... Procurement is very, it has been very male-dominated. When I worked at Thorny and Mai, the three chaps I worked for were interested in buying, you know, the car deals and stuff like that and have their bottles of whiskey delivered at, at Christmas time. You know, predominantly, you know, it was that sort of thing. But I think if you look at more and more, you know, people in marketing procurement, it is, there are a lot more females now, which is fantastic, you know, and... And you are starting to actually, if you look in the civil service in the UK, there are some fantastically strong women, mm. you know, absolutely brilliant women. But that's public sector. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that that's a very different type of procurement. But I think it would be really good in the private sector if there were more role models from a female perspective because we do suffer from an image problem. I mean, I joke that none of us none of us want to come out of the womb thinking we want to be buyers. But it is a serious point that actually where is it as a serious career choice? And I was on a webinar with SIPS a few months ago and, and you know and there was a chap on there saying, you know, he t- he suddenly actually is interested in being a buyer. And he went to the school and the careers person was like he said, oh, yeah, my, you know, someone was there and, oh, oh I, think I want to work in procurement. And the critic was like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, sort of <laughs> let's move on, you know. And, yeah, that's something that, you know, as, as, as SIPs or as buyers that we, we should look at changing. A friend of mine uh, works for a school and she said, will you come and do a careers talk? And I'm like, oh, yeah, great, because actually if I can get to those 13, 14-year-olds and talk about it, being female and working in buying as well. Yeah, so it, so it, has, been, it has been really tough, really tough in that, there's no female, there hasn't been any female role models mm. uh, in a very, what has been a male-dominated environment. But it has changed. Mm. I think, you know, especially, say, procurement, there's a lot more women around, especially, say, in the public sector, doing phenomenal work. And I think within marketing procurement, I would say probably two-thirds of people are female now. We just need to get up the ladder and, and get out there and, you know, I think, you know, provide more support, be more vocal to encourage young people into the industry. And I think, you know, you are one of those role models now. And it's always that thing that you, if you can't sort of uh, see the change that you want to see, you have to sort of be that role model yourself. So I think that's helped the industry enormously. And and particularly the fact that you've worked both sides. I think that's probably given you so many different insights. And uh, if I could actually just ask about that, is there any advice that you would give to agencies and then an advice that you would give to brands having seen it from both sides? I think the advice is the same for both. It's respect for the role. Mm. 
And I think whilst it has got a lot better, there still is that thing, will procurement go away? It's like, well, I've been doing it for 30 years. I don't think we're going away anywhere. I think, you know, the issue is obviously there are procurement people that have different agendas that are focused on cost savings. And because actually if you look at a procurement job in any organisation, it is about maximising that value, you know, and it obviously it's how you determine what that is. And also to reduce or manage the supplier base, you know. I mean, I'm talking to, I'm working with a global client at the moment um, and they've got like 1,200 marketing suppliers, you know, on their system. And it's just like, you know, re- and it's trying to see the wood for the trees and try and help them. So I think for both, be it brands where there are, the internal clients, be it marketing, e-commerce people, or where it's agencies, I think it's procurement has a great role to play if you get the right relationship with the right procurement person, because we are much more, you know, on the CFO's agenda mm. on that top table than we ever were, you know, down to COVID really, in that, you know, when the shit hit the fan about contracts and suppliers, okay, who can help us? Oh, Oh, that, that is a procurement. Yeah. So many of my procurement friends that I work with and, and colleagues are now much more involved upstream in terms of budget setting and the strategy and, and you know, look in the marketplace. And is it make versus buy? Do we need to look at in-housing? What is that requirement? Do we actually need to do that, for example? So I think that my number one thing is always respect, both for agencies invest the time to understand procurement and it has got a lot better you know the last 18 months two years especially a lot of the big organizations I've seen some fantastic documents added value ways of working you know really talking to procurement and you think well absolutely great on you because I was the first to work agency side and there are now more procurement people mainly obviously at the big holding companies, just invest the time to understand procurement. And the same for clients, I think, is procurement has a great role to play, but you need to work together because there's nothing worse than having a divisive team where you've got marketing and procurement on different sides of the table. That is never going to work and that's not yeah. going to be good for the agency. Like yesterday I had a call with an agency, you know, I'm working with their client and it's a very tricky situation. But, you know, for that half an hour saying to the you know agency, even though I'm paid by the client, look, Let's see how we can do this to do that. And if you do that, we could then look at this and just trying to, that marriage broken really, trying to sort of get that together. So, yeah, I do, I think it's just respect and understand the role and understand they could be different, you know, they will be different, you know, in that you have got someone who's cost focused or, you know, is value driven or is looking for supply. Understand where they're coming from and then you can work with them. And I, th- I think that's that's critical. And I know that um, Wendy and I are looking forward to working with you and helping the social elements uh, sort of grow in their education around working with procurement. Because, you know, as a founder myself, and, and as you know, the social element has gone into its 20th year this year. Oh, congratulations. But, you know, 20 years. I know. But I had to make... on it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I had to make this stuff up as I went along. And, and, and I remember the first dealings that we had I mean we were lucky enough to actually start working in the early days with people like Disney and uh, GE and and all of these like incredible brands right from the the early days but the first stage that we went through proper RFPs and procurement I was terrified I was absolutely terrified and and I had this sort of misunderstanding and and had this sort of sense that you weren't allowed to talk to procurement people because there was such a sort of clear process of how you do things that you know, for for a long time, it was it just felt that I that 
that you were so far away as, as procurement people. And obviously, you know, we've changed our approach completely and it is all about relationship building and and, and working together. But I think you're you're right, there was that sort of PR of procurement needed some work to, doing on it to know that, you know, procurement people are people. Yeah, I agree tomorrow. And I think we didn't help ourselves a lot of the time, you know, and, you know, obviously there was a lot of stuff off print in the press. I remember Peter York, the star guru, as it was called, as procurement Nazis at one point. You think, why, why is he having a view? But, you know, there were a number of incidents, I think, where we didn't help ourselves and you'd often see the trade press and it'd be very negative. That has stopped. And I think you're right. I think procurement has taken a long look at itself uh, and actually has, I think, has invested the time and is a lot better than where it was. I think everyone has. I think agencies have as well, big and small. Yeah. You know, so I think whilst I say it is respect, I think we have gone a long way the last few years, which is great because, you know, there are benefits. All I would say is just everyone's got different agendas and it's just understanding what those agendas are. Yeah. Something that's kind of like niggling away, you know, when you've got something in your head and you can't let it go. It was something that you said just a little while back about, you know, losing your uh, emotional control with that chap and crying. It's, it's something I kind of, I really hope that the world has changed, that is, it is okay, because I love a good cry in a meeting. Is <laughs> <laughs> that, that true, Wendy? How often have you seen her cry? I, I, I am saying nothing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not often, but I think it can be a sign of passion and, and often frustration. But I, I suppose... I'm an advocate for being in an environment where it's safe to do that. Exactly. I think it's, it's a trust is a part. I mean, obviously the situations will vary, but I think being able to be vulnerable and display that emotion in, you know, in an environment where you feel safe and you, and you trust the people you're with can be yeah. hugely valuable, maybe. Yeah, I think we've come a long way since that. I do regret doing it, but as you both say, I probably shouldn't regret doing it because it was just out of frustration yeah. with this, you know, male who just didn't understand. Would it have been different if it was a female? I don't know. Maybe. It's hard to know, isn't it? I remember it happening to me. It, it would have been about, oh, no, more than 20 years ago. But it was in an open plan office wow. with my boss's boss. Oh, God, it was just awful. I, I, I feel your pain. Yeah, but I think it's reframing it as that we, it's okay to be vulnerable and a vulnerability is a strength. Yes. That's what I would say. So I think you should scratch that away from 20 years ago and reframe yeah. it. Yeah, the bullying thing, though, I look back at that, that was pretty awful, really. And I do think, oh, God, yeah. You know, there's no excuse for that, really, that, you know, everyone is their own person. But it made me appreciate, I think, be more emotionally intelligent, be more, you know, aware of people's feelings and. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's a hard lesson to learn, but um, there's no excuse for that. And I think especially female to female. Mm. Uh, definitely. And I think some of those things can can really sort of shape how you want to work with other people in the future. Because I know that I had an experience in the past where I was let go from a job. The only time that I've been sacked from a job and it was after three months and then suddenly they told me all of these objectives that I should have done before my three-month probation which I'd never seen. So they were like, here's a list of things that you failed on that you've never actually seen before. And and then actually did that walking me out of the building with my box oh. of things while I got into a taxi. And, and that's the kind of thing that stays with you. And I sort of thought, I never want that to be anyone's experience. And, and I never want to sort of have a an agency where, where sort of 
these kind of things happen. So it's it's funny how even in this sort of crappy times, you can kind of use that and think, well, I I want to be a better person than that than the way that I've been treated. And I think that's what it did. I mean, by the way, tomorrow, I hope they pay for the taxi. You didn't pay for the taxi, did you? <laughs> I did have to pay for my own taxi with my little, my little box with the plants in it. I wonder if that happens with the apprentice candidates when they're being carted off. In <laughs> yeah, did, did you take a credit card? They have to say, because Alex Sugar hasn't paid for it. But you're right. It, has, it, re- it was a real great lesson still to this day about people using their feminine ways to get stuff done. Mm. which I really disagree with. And I think it's made me, you know, I'm bloody good at what I do, you know, and, you know, it's not always always easy to say that, is there? But I think it gave me the confidence to say, I'm going to be the best at what I do. Stuff you, regardless of you, I'm not, you know, dressing like that, you doing that, for example. I'm not playing the game. I'm yeah, not yeah, playing yeah. the game. And, yeah, that's why I've got to where I am. And I think that, ha- I think it did help, actually. You yeah. Know, but, yeah, it still hurts, but it did help, I think. Play your own game. So, what have you been most proud of in your career so far? Oh, what am I most proud of? It's a, it's a silly little thing, but being in the campaign A-list. Fantastic. First procurement person to be in that and them kindly calling me a good egg. Because that, you know, that was great. You know, there'd never been a procurement person in, obviously, the campaign A-list and to be called a good egg as well. So so there's that. And also I won a Women in Marketing Award, I think, a long time ago, 2014, to get that. And also I got awarded a fellowship by the, the SIPs as well for my services to, to marketing procurement. But yeah, I think it was it was the campaign A-list. That was quite, I was quite proud of that, I have to say. That is brilliant. And and I think it, it's interesting that when you are running your own thing, so, you know, you, you run your own business, which means you have to do your own PR and marketing. How do you kind of balance the whole trying to sort of promote the uh, the Tina Fijant brand as well? Have you got any sort of tips on how you do that or, or how you're juggling that? Yeah, it's funny. Someone sent me a LinkedIn message not so long ago and said, Tina, who are you, who are you using to do your LinkedIn? Because you must spend about an hour a day doing it. I'm like, uh, no. And I don't think I've been on LinkedIn for the last, you know, week because obviously, at the, you know, there's a lot of different stuff on there at the moment. And I always remember, because I always regret not calling myself a name, like a brand. Sure. And I remember I did a favour for a design agency years and years ago. And I said, well, should I have a name? You know, not just Tina Fiji. And they said, no. And I always remember they said, like Anne Summers and Eddie Stobart, you are who you are. I'm like, (laughs) right, you're comparing me to a lingerie and a haulage company. Um, (laughs) Great. Yeah, I do realise I wish I'd been, you know, Tina Fiji, I don't know, Avalon. You know, when you you check into someone's reception, um, mind you, I did check into WPP's reception and we laughed about my surname and on my badge it came up as Tuna Fijian. I thought, <laughs> goodness, Tina's only four letters long. <laughs> Fijian, you might have a problem with, but Tina, please, Tuna. <laughs> yeah, no, people say that. I think, again, I think because I in, I love what I do and it's about spreading that positive, the positivity, mm. the positive message. And that's why I think that that resonates and comes out in that I like sharing stuff and, you know, sharing information and uh, and doing that. And all, also, like, doing talks because again it's whilst it's about teen fusion it is about this is what good procurement can be you know to be on a panel to be asked to write you know have a point of view for me I've actually always thought it is about spreading the procurement marketing procurement message more than getting teen fusion out there and I think obviously that has been a nice 
you know benefit because it does help even though some people do use my name in vain I have had a story where you know I've heard an agency say well I know Tina Fijian and they're like they got caught out because they don't they try to get a 10% discount or something they're like no I don't know them so you know and I said well if they pronounce my name wrong you know they don't know me so if they you know (laughs) that's an easy test so yeah I I think you're right tomorrow I mean you're you're good at it as well you know in terms of you're passionate about what you do and obviously we've been a couple of conferences together I think it's really important you know for us to be out there and to talk about the things that we are really passionate about on on behalf of the industry isn't it you know in terms of what you do and what I do Uh, and as a a consequence that is the Tina Fijant brand and I suppose I'm glad in one way that I didn't rebrand as I don't know why I thought of Avalon but Avalon (laughs) Limited or something you know it's Tina Fijant the brand yeah, and you're very good at it. And and I know that we met um, during lockdown in Clubhouse, didn't we? That was, I think, where we first started sort of chatting. Is it? I don't think I realised that. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think we were kind of like both sort of experimenting with different formats. And, yeah. and I think everything that you were saying, I was like, she's really smart. I like what she's saying. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> So I think we might have reached the part of the podcast where we'll, we'll, I'm going to get my probe out again, Tina. Right. Let's start with what's your idea of a perfect weekend? Any guilty pleasures? Obviously quite difficult at the moment, but I would actually like to have more weekends away, Mm. you know, and sort of traveling, you know, traveling a bit more than we have. That's been my first choice. If I don't travel, then it actually is going to the cinema. I absolutely love the cinema. I love the big screen. And then sort of dinner with friends. That would be sort of plan B. Sounds lovely. This this actually links back to to some of the stuff from earlier, but is there any advice that you'd give to your teenage self? I think do everything. I think my mum was very good, you know, in terms of encouraging us to do, you know, the guides and the brownies and judo and swimming and, and stuff like that. It's just, just try it. Just, yeah. just, just try it. If the opportunity's there, one regret I have in my career is not living abroad. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of godsons and I'm um, in their twenties and I just keep saying, if you get the chance, just, go. you know, I really wish I'd had the opportunity and I probably would have done if I'd thought about it, but that'd be my second. So do everything. And if you get a chance to live or work abroad, just experience a different culture and different way of working. It'd be fantastic. And is there anywhere in particular that you wished you'd lived? Yeah. New York. Oh yeah. I re- even now I really wish I could get a client any clients that are listening you know that I'd go over every six weeks for a week or something you know I've got relatives there I just love New York so much the buzz of it I don't think I'd like to live there because um I've got misophobia which is that I'm really sensitive to noise like you know people mm-hmm. you know eating crisps on a train oh my goodness you know and that sort of noise so the New York noise but um yeah I'd love I'd love to go to I'd love to have lived in New York when I was younger mm-hmm. yeah I'm not sure if I'm, as you get older it was a young, older older person's pace but I just love the bus so New York definitely yeah there's something about New York I know that whenever I go I always come back with energy new ideas and a sort of like a renewed energy it's it's just yeah. it's got something hasn't it it has it really has much more than London I think I just and I like the individuality of it you walk around that you know the the dirty breakfast places and the coffee shops and and the walking everywhere you know just and I love the grid system as well just yeah just in the service so yeah New York I'd love that fantastic and um you said that you've been out and about a little bit more now that you know we can get me out and about a bit more have you uh discovered any new restaurants or have you got like a favorite restaurant that you can share or maybe one in new york who knows 
<laughs> yeah, my, well, my favourite restaurant is the Japanese restaurant called Penyang Soho Farmhouse. So I'm lucky enough to be a member of that, and of course that's in the Cotswolds. You know, and a lot of you know, um, that's about a 40 minute drive away from me, and I just absolutely love the Japanese. Always had the same thing: vegetable tempura, the beef, sticky rice. But that that is you know that is my favourite favourite restaurant. Maybe I can persuade you to have a meeting with me there. <laughs> very welcome. You're both very welcome. Yep. <laughs> Heard it on the podcast. <laughs> Is there anything that you've still got on your bucket list, if you've got a bucket list, of course? Yeah, I mean, I've got a step-grandson who's two years old who lives in California. And obviously we don't haven't seen him. We only met him once. I mean, he's coming over in a month's time. And I think my bucket list would be to probably go and work over there, you know, like for three months in every year or something like that or base ourselves in Palm Springs or something like that so you know obviously cats permitting you know I've got two cats or and the old man and you know my elderly mother but you know I think that would be I would love that I think three months you know and that would also cover off the thing I said to Wendy about working somewhere different and mm-hmm. yeah just a you know, three months California even six months. So you need a client in California for three months and then perhaps the year after in New York for three months. Yes, if you could arrange that. that anyone listening? We're putting that out into the universe. Yeah, there you go. That'd be great. So no, I'd love to do that and sort of spend time with them. Yeah, because these days we can, can't we? We can do that. Absolutely. That, well, you know, I've got a friend who's just gone to Corfu for three weeks and, you know, she hasn't told the client, but, you know, it's absolutely fine, you know, in terms of as long as she's on the calls and stuff like that. That's absolutely yeah, fine. absolutely. So if tomorrow and I could gift you an extra hour every day, what would you do with it? I'd read a book. I'm really, really bad. I've had two books by my bedside for a year. Um, and we did start a book club in our little village before lockdown. We tried to sort of carry it on. One, we got a few intellects joined and we were like, oh, we don't, know. We don't want to be analysing every bloody bit of grammar no. and everything. <laughs> we just want to read some chick licks, you know. And obviously when I was commuting, when I was going to London three, four days a week, it was perfect. So I'd read a book. But, you know, social media is too consuming sometimes mm-hmm. and it's annoying. So it would be to read a book and get our village book club up and running again. We all say it, don't we? It's just making the time at the end of the day. So yeah. you know, read, read a book. And how would your friends describe you? And is that the same as how you'd like them to describe you? Well, it was quite nice because a friend sent me a text the other day and said, oh, you're the most kind and generous person. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, that's quite nice. So, yeah, I think loyal, kind, mm-hmm. generous. Hopefully a bit funny, as in ha ha, not funny, but peculiar. <laughs> so yeah, no, just because yeah, just has some you know recent issues with my partner and um, in terms of his health and you know friends been really supportive and mm-hmm. yeah, so that's sort of that's actually the text I had a few weeks ago from a friend. So that was really nice. So yeah, that 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 does it for me. That's you know the, the loyalty, the generous. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny bit, hopefully, I can work on a bit more, make <laughs> a few more jokes. Um, so, yeah. that's And how nice to get that out of the blue as well. Yeah, it's really that nice. really lifts your day, doesn't it? Yeah, I didn't have to pay them. It's absolutely but, fine. Well yeah. done. <laughs> so, Tina, it would be incredibly wrong of me to invite you on the show and not get you to talk about your best pitch story. So are there any, like, funny stories or anything that you want to share? Nothing that's going to get us into trouble, if that's okay. But yeah, have you got any sort of good pitch stories that you want to share? Yeah, there was one when I worked at one of the agencies and um, the client was a low cost airline. So first of all, you know, the offices that the agency were in at the time were 
really expensive, you know, marble lined and £60 a square foot at the time. So that didn't help to start with because these guys were, I'd been to their offices in a hangar off a, you know, regional airport. And the CEO wanted to spend two, two and a half thousand pounds on flowers to start with so obviously I then stopped that so that was that was the first <laughs> challenge and then the clients walked in and I was actually in the pitch which you know was unusual I think for, for me I was commercial director there and as it happens I actually did know the head of marketing because actually I'd worked with him at Orange so I ended up doing the teas and coffees goodness knows why so I just said um okay so when I did the teas and coffees I asked them all for one pound fifty because that's what they charged on their airlines for teas and coffees <laughs> We didn't get through the pitch. I, I, I hate, you know, I was like trying to show that we were like being cost effective. You know, I've already got the got the flower, expensive flowers cancelled. That's brilliant. I think one of them did give me some money, which I then gave back. So we didn't get through, but I don't think it was just because, I think because I knew the guys, I think it's because, you know, there were bigger reasons than my £1.50 <laughs> for a cup of coffee. So, yeah, that's probably the best pitch story I've got from when I worked. Agency side, but we you know pitch, pitches are great. I think they're a great opportunity, and it's good now that we're starting to have a you know a few more than face to face because we're in a people industry, as we said at the beginning about you know the interaction, that social interaction. So yeah, it, it, it's always great. But me, the other thing is, I, people take the Mickey out of me, but I always look at the agency biscuits. Um, <laughs> and then I, then I did upgrade to the agency toiletries, and I know there's a few agencies before COVID. That wasn't white company toiletries in there. I know my white company that did not smell. That was, you know, Sainsbury's own in a white company container. No way. Yeah. Yep. I've sussed that out. And then biscuits. I just read an article in campaign this morning from Katie Lee's moved to Wave Moke about why aren't there any biscuits in media agency pitches? I thought, oh, that's a good point, actually. Media agency is a bit tight on their biscuit front. So, uh, yeah. So, for procure, the other thing from pitches is, you know, watch out for your biscuits, but also the toiletries uh, if the client goes to the loo. Because it's overhead. I mean, joking aside, it's because we think you can afford expensive chocolate biscuits and white company. That's yeah. overhead. I mean, it's, it's taking the mickey a bit, but you have, you know, we joke about, we don't usually put it on the scoring sheet. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the impact. I, I do remember... Um, going for retro sweets um, for, a, for a pitch once and just got incredibly lucky that the client said that they had such a happy memory about the particular sweets that we'd bought that it that we'd won the pitch on just on that. <laughs> Another one is a media agency actually quite a few years ago had their own in-house chef and I remember we t- took this client in there and I mean it was a it was a feast and absolutely but one of them was scones but the cream and jam were separate. So it's very hard if you're obviously wanting to pay attention to the pitch to get the scone, scone or scone, get the cream or jam first and actually do it. And, of course, the client was desperate for this scone but didn't want to <laughs> be leaning over to actually get the the cream and the jam, you know, in, in terms of that. So that was, that was funny as well, actually. Well, being half Cornish, that could have caused a complete riot in terms of whether they chose jam first or cream first as well. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. that's true. That was a risky, risky move. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, this is the, the, the end of the podcast now. So I would just give you the opportunity. Is there anything that you actually wanted to talk about that we haven't had a chance to cover? Or if you've got any closing thoughts, I'm going to pass the platform over to you, Tina. I think I would, you know, we've covered a great deal so thank you both very much really enjoyable it's just a quote that i saw last week in one of Richard Richard Tabakawana's 
he does his weekly newsletter. I'll send you one when I get the next one. And actually he was talking about work and actually he said, find alignment with what you excel at and what makes you grow. A niche allows you to build expertise and position yourself. And I thought, that's what I've done. I think, you know, and I was on a call actually working for a client and they got a procurement consultant in there who I worked with 20, 25 years ago at GSK. And he was saying, you created that niche and you've really enjoyed it and you've built the expertise up and you really enjoy it. So I think, you know, those words really echo with me. So, you know, find stuff that you that you really want to enjoy, that makes you help you grow, but you've got to enjoy it. You know, you don't want to be miserable. Um, you've got to have a passion for what you do. So, yeah, find your niche is probably what I would say. And then from that, be positive. And think of others as well. I think, you know, be be aware of others. Have that emotional intelligence sort of switched on. And uh, and then you'll grow and just and, and have fun. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.